chapter 8. John chapter 8. I want to welcome guests and visitors here this morning. Members, if you'll look around you, if you could share your Bible and the Gospel of John chapter 8 with your neighbors next to you, especially if they don't have a King James Version Bible, if you'd help them, that'd be a blessing. While you're doing that, in the back of the church on the way out, there's a table there in the center. There's a cross there, and inside your bulletin, we have, an, we have a card here we've entitled Invite Five for Easter. It's got five categories of people for you to list. If you have not done so already, or you have more names, I'd like to encourage you to put some names here, people that you will get on your heart or on your heart now that you'll invite to the Easter musical and our Easter outreach over these next several weeks. And use this as a wonderful opportunity, the weekend of April 20th to 21st, very special time of Easter outreach. Get, grab a bunch of our flyer cards. Thousands of these have already been given out in these next several days. A lot of it will be going out. We will be having a Sunday, Sunday outreach as well from 1.30 to 3. Already have several teams lined up for the next several Sundays that will be going out. So if you want to join us, meet in the courtyard at 1.20, and uh, make sure you get, we give you some time of instruction, and we're going to go out in teams and pairing folks up to go. And then every Saturday, of course, we have that during the weekday. If you have a weekday that's off, you let us know at the, at the office here, and we'll get you paired up with one of our staff members to go out, and that'll be a blessing there. So hope you'll take advantage of that. Tonight, I want you to be back this evening. We're going to help you on a, on a message, very practical thought tonight on um, message entitled The Soul Winning Christian. I want you to come tonight and some fresh material, new things to recovery that I pray will be a blessing, help to you, and just try to improve your, your, your ability in communicating the gospel to folks about the Lord Jesus Christ. John chapter 8, I'm going to read the even, uh, the odd number of verses. You read the even number of verses. We're going to read all the way to verse 12. I will read odd, you read even. When you read, read loud and distinctly. Read so that next, the person next to you feels kind of annoyed that you're talking out loud. Amen? I want you to annoy your neighbor this morning because that's why I know you're awake and with me today, okay? And wives, if your husband's just kind of mumbling around, it's, it's because he just woke up. Just nudge him a little bit and say, speak a little louder, amen? So, all right, I'm going to speak very loud, and I want to hear you do the same. Or we're going to keep reading until I kind of feel like we're really loud, okay? All right, Jesus went into the Mount of Olives, congregation, and... <clears throat> And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, congregation, they... Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. Congregation. And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. <clears throat> She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Verse 12 altogether. Then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, 
but shall have the light of life. Now, while you're standing, I want to call your attention to a few phrases. Have you got your pen out or highlighter? I want you to notice verse 2. It says early in the morning. That doesn't mean I'm going to preach on it, but I want you to notice that, all right? Early in the morning. I want you to notice in verse 2, the people came unto him. I want you to notice verse 3. You don't have to underline this, but notice the emphasis on the scribe and Pharisees they brought. Anything they brought to Jesus was always trouble. I want you to notice verse 5. This important question, I actually should have just titled the message this, What Sayest Thou? You know, whenever we want to get insight in the mind of God, the question we should ask is, Lord, what sayest thou? Verse 6, I want you to notice, he, he wrote with his finger on the ground. I want you to underline that. <clears throat> Go down again, and notice verse 8, he writes again on the ground. But you notice verse 9, it says, being convicted by their own conscience. But you notice verse 11. Jesus said, neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. And the centrality of our message this morning is found in verse 12. Would you notice that? After all of this, Jesus made a great proclamation. I am the light of the world. I am and the light of the world. Our Father, this morning, we thank you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. We thank you that you are our Heavenly Father. We thank you, dear God, that you are our Savior. But this morning, we want to exalt the fact that you are light, you are life, and you are love. And tonight, I, this morning, I pray in a very sentimental way in a very compassionate way, and yet in a very holy way. I pray you speak to our hearts. Break up the fallow ground. There's ground that needs to be turned over. There's ground that needs to be ready to receive the precious seed of the Word of God so that after the seed is sown, it will bring forth 25, 50, and 100-fold fruit. Father, there are hearts that are broken this morning and hurting. They need a touch from God, just like this woman did. And there's others of us, perhaps, struggling in an area of our life, like this woman and these Pharisees did, that need the touch of God. And for all of us this morning, I pray that, as the Bible says, that these men were moved in their own conscience. I pray that each of us would determine today to have a conscience void of offense before God and before man. I pray that we'd live in good conscience, and you deliver us this morning from an evil conscience and defiled conscience. We pray this morning that we would see the light. And thank you this morning that thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. We thank you this morning that the light shines brightly even today. And for Christians today, I pray you help us to hold, to hold forth the word of life. And I pray that you help us as Christians when we leave today, take some cards with us. And get involved and punch some holes in the darkness by declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ. Even as you've done over and over again, even as you did through this week, we pray for those without Christ to see their need and call upon the Lord to save them. Bless our time together, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. 
This morning we're studying the truth about light. Specifically, we're looking at verse 12. We're going to pull all of what we're going to say in our study this morning on that proclamation that Jesus made that says, I am the light of the world. Now, I didn't tell you to do this earlier, but I want you to look at those two words that were right in the beginning of that phrase, the terms, I am. Circle that. I am. Seven times Jesus used that phrase to introduce what he is to us in a metaphorical way. He talked about, I am the bread of life. He says later on, I am the resurrection and the life. Later on, he says, I am the true vine and my father, the husband. In between all that, he says, I am the good shepherd and I am the door. Listen, when Jesus uses the term I am, it's a fitting way to describe who God is. It's a fitting way to describe God being eternal, God being true, God being faithful, God being relational, and God being unfailing. I am refers to God's covenant relationship to his people. He said, I am that I am. When people ask who I am, you tell them I am that I am. He's eternal. He's true. He's faithful. He's merciful. He's relational. He's unfailing. Listen this morning. Thank God today Jesus said I am, and he didn't say I am not. Thank God this morning Jesus said I am, and he did not say I was. Thank God this morning Jesus said I am, and he didn't say I might be. Thank God today he is, amen? Jesus is, he is I am. And so he asserts his deity as God in making the statement. When he used that phrase I am, it caught the attention of the Jews. When we read that in the New Testament, in the Old Testament, it should catch our attention as God's people. It should catch your attention as an unbeliever. And it's verse 12, he introduces a great doctrine about himself, an incredible attribute about who he is. He says, I am the light of the world. He's speaking about a place of darkness, a place of ruin, a place of decadence, a place where we need to shine some light. I read the story about a little girl that heard the preacher preach on this same verse, I am the light of the world. And she looked at him and she said, preacher, are you the light of the world? You kept saying, I am the light of the world. And he said, no, little girl, I'm not the light of the world. I'm preaching about Jesus who is the light of the world, but all of us need to be little lights that shine for him. And she said this, well, sir, could you come down to my house because there's a lot of darkness there and I need some darkness in my home. And I think a lot of us feel that way. We live in a world where there's much darkness because of sin. Of course, darkness is a picture of sin and unbelief. But light represents God shining the light. And thank God this morning that when we woke up today, some of you got up right before the crack of dawn, but as the sun started to come up, what a wonderful thought it was as light came on. And we look outside, it's wonderful to be in the light. I'd rather be in the light than rather be in the darkness. And I think we could say today that as we look at our Lord Jesus Christ and consider this statement, he says, I am the light of the world. He that follows me shall not walk in darkness, but you have the light of life. We want to focus on the subject of life, the truth about light. Now, what did Jesus mean by that? What did he mean that I'm the light of the world? How does this phrase, how does this doctrine apply to the story in this passage? How does it apply to you and me? Is Jesus the light of your life? I want you to see four things about this passage this morning. Number one, would you consider with me the advantage of light? We want to start by looking at the advantage of light. We want to look at light and the importance of it. Well, first of all, I want you to notice this morning that light reveals, light exposes, light helps us to see people 
objects and places very clearly. Ephesians 5.13 says, But all things that are reproved are made manifest by the light. Light reveals. We shed light on things. You know and I know that you cannot read in darkness. You've got to have some light. And when the light gets on that object you're looking at or the book you want to read, it makes manifest and reveals. All things that are reproved, all things that are reproved are made manifest by the light. For whatsoever doth make manifest is light. Light reveals. Hey, light gives life. John 1, 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. I like what it says in 1 John, because when John wrote these words down, he later on captured on that about 40 years later, as he wrote the little epistle of 1 John. He said, God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. And in 1 John, we read about God being light, we read about God being life, and we read about God being love. And so the Bible tells us here in John 1, 4, John 1, 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. Light is necessary necessary for life itself. It sets our biological clock. It triggers in our brains the sensation of seeing things. And then notice not only does light reveal, not only does light give light, but notice light scatters the darkness. The Bible says in John 1 5, and the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehendeth it not at all. Darkness is always a metaphor for blindness. It's a metaphor for darkness. The Bible says about the hearts of men. Men love darkness rather than light. And so we know that light scatters darkness. But light also gives warmth. I mean, I think a lot of us enjoy just being in the sun sometimes when there's a little bit of warmth that we just enjoy being in that sun and getting the warmth from it. Light is good for your health. It's a good source of vitamin D. If you're not taking vitamin E supplements, you probably will try to get in the sun later today and get a little bit of vitamin D on your face there. But it's a good source for vitamin D, so it helps other things to process in your body. It helps you to sleep better at night. They say if you spend about 20 to 30 minutes out in the sun there, it and during the daytime, they say it helps you to sleep a little bit better at night. It improves your mood. It gives you higher levels of energy and productivity. But when we think of all the things about light and its attributes and the advantages, light provides guidance. The Bible says, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Listen to what David said in Psalms 43 verse 3 as he saw, talked about the Lord. He says, oh, send out thy light and thy truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me unto thy holy hill and to thy tabernacle. Light helps us to see where we're going. Uh, when we used to do our family camps, we would do these kind of these things at night and we told everybody to bring a flashlight because you couldn't see at night. There was no, uh, there was basically, uh, unless there were stars and moon out there, you couldn't see much of anything and there was no street lighting, things like that. And of course, if you didn't have your flashlight, you'd stumble in the dark and trip somewhere. And we think about light, we need light to show us where we're going. I thank the Lord this morning that as he gives us his word, God only needs to give us enough light for the next step. But light provides guidance. It gives us direction for where we need to go. And so we see the advantage of light. Notice number two, as we get to our passage of scripture, we get into this and we want to see the application of light and this passage. Light and the previous verses, the Feast of Tabernacles. Notice if you would in verses one to, one to eight, we find an accusation being given here. An accusation that's being given here. The story comes on the heels here of the Feast of the Tabernacles, which we spoke about last week. There at the Feast of Tabernacles, our Lord Jesus Christ spoke out about believing on him. And he said, 
says, those who believe on me, he says, out of his belly, out of his life, out of the essence of his life, shall flow rivers of living water. He talked about the importance of faith in Jesus Christ as Savior. And he talked about once you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as Savior, the Holy Spirit of God indwells you. And out of that life, our spiritual life, there should come forth spiritual fruit. And out of our spiritual life should come forth spiritual righteousness. And out of our life should be, be the, the filling of the Spirit. And so on the heels of that great feast of the tabernacles which we spent some time on last week Jesus now at the conclusion of that he has some people that are against him and he just kind of leaves them and notice verse 1 tells us that Jesus went up to the Mount of Olives now the Mount of Olives was a favorite place that our Lord went to many times uh, for time of individual sequester he would go there to uh, spend time with his father in heaven and he spent much time in prayer and he probably identified a spot and place where he prayed and met with God the Father and as far as we know he may have spent the whole evening there at the Mount of Olives then we're told in verse 2 Jesus early in the morning came right back down to the temple. And there at the temple, the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. Notice in verse 20. Verse 20 gives us precisely the location where our Lord was teaching. This is important for us to understand as we look at this passage of Scripture. In verse 20, it tells us that he was at the point, the place of the treasury. Now the place of the treasury was a great gathering place. The place of the treasury, and I've got a future message on this we'll get to, but the place of the treasury had at least seven, seven columns that were shaped like trumpets. And each of these columns were represented seven different offerings that the Jews would come and bring. There would be the offering for their tithe, and then the offering for something else, and the offering for something else there. And these large trumpet-based columns, if you would, were there to basically, people would go there and make their offerings. Well, people would have to make their way there. Right next to that was the place called the Court of the Women. And the Court of the Women was where women could come in and make their entry into the temple area. Jesus is there back of the temple, and he purposely, of all the locations he could have chosen for this particular passage. He chose to be there at the place of treasury where there would be a large gathered people. Now remember Jews were still in town. They are just completed the Feast of the Tabernacles. That wonderful time of that. And Jesus had just come off just this euphoria of, of just announcing that he was the uh, living water and uh, how he talked about believing on him and the fountain of life and those things. And he just came off this. So naturally in verse 2 and 3 as we go there, Jesus shows, he shows up there physically and the people are attracted to him. They just kind of stop and want to know, well I wonder what else the Messiah has to say. And the previous verses tell us in chapter 7 that many believed on him, but the Pharisees and the scribes they were very angry with him. In fact, they got angry at some people because they believed on him. If you go back a few verses, they, uh, they, they, they speak condemningly about the Lord Jesus Christ, and they say things like this, are you also deceived? And after they heard things like, never man uh, spake like this man, until so they spoke some this very disparaging, uh, critical things about our Lord Jesus Christ there. So Jesus, that didn't bother him. Jesus kind of just shook it off and went back there in the temple that morning, and he started teaching them early in the morning. And of course, the Jews got assembled there at the temple earlier that day to hear these things. And you can imagine this large mass of people that was growing as people were coming with their offerings. Women were making their way through the court of the women. People were sending there. And our Lord Jesus Christ is standing there, teaching them the word of God, proclaiming truths, helping them. And as they did so, we see something happen that's very abrupt. Something that was kind of out of the ordinary. Something that the Pharisees, the scribes, typically would not do. But they did something because if you'll notice in verses 1 to 5, they sought to entrap our Lord Jesus Christ. What they did there was not because they were concerned about sin, but what they did there, this we'll see in a moment, where they were more concerned about entrapment of the Lord Jesus Christ and finding fault with our Lord. Notice it says, and early in the morning, he came again into the temple 
And all the people came unto him, and he sat down, and he taught them. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? Now I want you to put, your plate, put yourself in the midst of this. And imagine you're one of those people sitting there listening to Jesus teach. And we're not really talking what he was teaching, but whatever it was, I'll tell you this, it was good, amen? Whatever Jesus says is always good. And so he, whatever he's teaching is good. And these Pharisees come, and you find them bringing this woman, and whatever it may be, the Bible says she was taken in the very act of adultery. I'm not sure this woman even had time to get her clothes on. I don't want to sound immodest in my preaching, but I'm not even sure she had time to get her clothes on. She probably just had a blanket or sheet over her, just maybe not quite modestly dressed, and she's taken abruptly. They burst on this scene with this woman, and you can just imagine the, the, just the fidgetiness and the uncomfortableness everybody that's standing there is feeling that there are these Pharisees here. And the Bible describes it this way. They brought this woman standing there in the midst of them. Here's Jesus sitting down. Jesus is teaching the word of God. Abruptly these Pharisees come. They bring this woman and in a self-righteous manner they say, Sir, this woman was taken in adultery. Now adultery is bad. Adultery is sin. I'm not going to cover up this morning. and This is not a message on adultery. But adultery is bad. Adultery occurs when a man or a woman who is married, they've exchanged a marriage covenant. They are not faithful to the other, to their spouse. And they have, a, they have an illicit relation with someone that's not their spouse. Adultery is so bad that the Bible mentions just the word adultery by itself 33 times in Scripture. When we find the word adultery, it's related to sin. The Bible describes adultery as the breaking of the seventh commandment that God gave to Moses. Adultery is breaking the marriage covenant. Adultery is breaking that seventh commandment. Adultery was punishable by stone. Notice verse 3 here. The Bible says, And the scribes and the Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. This woman here, whatever was going on, these men burst abruptly into her place where she was, and they bring this woman there, and they bring her before the Lord Jesus Christ, and they're trying to make him look bad, if you would, in front of people. And they said, Well, Jesus, here's this woman. We took her in the very act of adultery, and Moses in the law tells us that we should, that we should stone such a woman. But we want to know, what do you have to say about this? What well, there's several problems as we look at this accusation. Problem number one we have to look at here, if they took this woman in the very act, how did they even know that this was going on? How did they even know this woman was guilty of such a thing? How did they even know this was going on? How did they even know this woman? Then problem number two is, where was the man? Because if a stoning was commanded, the man, not only should, not only should the woman be stoned, but the man should be stoned. The Jews had in their law a description of how, how horrific the punishment would be. In some cases, what they would do is they would take the man first, and they would bury him up in human excrement up to his neck, and they would put a cloth around him, and they would wrap this cloth around his neck, and so that one man on the right side and one man on the left would squeeze that cloth and choke that man to death as he's standing there in human excrement. They'd say they would do that and they would stone him from there. And then they would take the woman and put her on the outside and they would stone her. I mean, the, the penalty for adultery is many sins that we find there in the book of Leviticus was very, very, very was, was very punitive, if you might say. And they would stoning and stoning was by death. And of course, that was a very terrible thing. And of course, as we look at the situation, they knew that stoning was by death and they wanted to know the Lord Jesus Christ's commentary. They wanted to know his narrative on the situation. And they're making 
making this accusation there. But the question we have to look at is, they're looking at this and saying, Jesus, what do you have to say about this woman? And what do you have to say about her sin? They were so focused on this woman, they were not focused on themselves. They were not focused on the fact that they were presenting themselves as being self-righteous and hypocritical and men that were outside of the things of God. And they present this woman here to Jesus and make this accusation. And they say this, Verse 5, now Moses and the law commanded us that such should be shown, but what sayest thou? They wanted to know Jesus' commentary in the matter. May I say this morning, it's so easy for us to be like these Pharisees. Yes, what this woman did was wrong. And yes, what this woman did was a terrible sin. And yes, what this woman did was punishable as a capital crime that she had to be stoned. But who are we, who are we to look down on someone else and to be judgmental of someone to the place where we magnify their sin and we don't look at ourselves instead and look at our sins and look at our lives and these men who are learned in the law and these men who are supposed to be uh, to know the letter of the law they come to the Lord and they say to him what sayest thou may I say this morning as we look at the accusations we're prone to make as we find fault in other people as we look at the errors and difficulties other people have may I remind us this morning as we ask that question what sayest thou we must not ask that question based upon what we see in somebody else and how the Lord condemns it and using the Lord's word to be a sword or a hammer on their life. But may we look at it and say, Lord, what do you have to say about me? I pray that this coming week, even beginning today, that you would take the word of God and open it and spend precious time reading God's word and let the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, work deeply into your heart and into your conscience and life. And may instead of us saying, well, lo, I found something here that points to brother so-and-so or sister so-and-so, may we look at the word of God and say to ourselves, Lord, what do you have to say to me? Lord, how do you speak to me this morning? What sayest thou? I think our conscience will be stirred if every time we read the Word of God and we say, Lord, what sayest thou? If you don't want the Bible to be boring to you, if you don't want to fall asleep reading your Bible, approach your Bible by asking the question each and every time, Lord, what sayest thou? What's the message you have for me? What sin do you want to point out in my life? What encouragement do you want to give me? These Pharisees came and they made an accusation. Oh, we see the, we see the advantage of life and we see the accusation. But notice the action of our Lord Jesus Christ. You can imagine how uncomfortable that situation was. In fact, it was so uncomfortable, I believe everybody that was sitting there, you could almost hear a pin drop at that moment. Uh, you can imagine as crowds were summoning there. It probably brought even more people to go around that situation, watch what's going on. Here is this woman that was taking the very act. The accomplice is not there. She's there by herself, and she's being accused, and she's wondering in her heart of hearts, I wonder if they're going to stone me. I wonder what Jesus is going to do. And she probably every now and then cast her eyes, looking in the eyes of the Lord Jesus Christ, wondering, is he going to, is he going to condemn me? What is he going to do? And what are they going to do? And she's wondering in her heart of hearts what's going on. And everyone standing there is very comfortable because perhaps in their own hearts they're thinking I wonder whatever happens here if that's going to point to me. And you'll notice our Lord Jesus Christ, we see an action on his behalf. How did Jesus deal with this? How did Jesus if you would, how did, how did he approach the situation? Well notice verse, verse 5 and 6 give us some insight about this. We see first of all the writing. The Bible says this they said tempting him that they might have to accuse him. They didn't find this woman. They didn't put this woman in the situation if you want to because she was a sinner. They wanted to use her to get to Jesus. They wanted to use her to embarrass him. They wanted to use her to find fault with him and to discredit him and to criticize him and to tear him down. May I say this morning as we think about the self-righteousness of the world we live in and the self-righteousness of the media it's trying to find fault with Christianity and find fault with the word of God and find fault in our Savior. But remind 
tried you this morning. They can do all they want. We're going to come to the same conclusion that Pontius Pilate came to. I find no fault in him. Why? Because Jesus is without sin. Jesus is holy. Jesus is righteous. And Jesus is God. And so the Bible says in verse 6, This they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. And notice this, Jesus stooped down. Now Jesus was already sitting there. The Bible doesn't tell us, but I imagine as the scribes came with those, that woman, he may have stood up. And the Bible says that our Lord and Savior, he stooped down. In other words, he bent himself very low. And as he did so, he bent himself low enough that with one finger, he started writing in the sand. Now, I don't know if you've ever written in the sand. I remember as a kid doing that. My, my grandparents had a store down there in West Oak. It's no longer there. But in, they had a huge lot in the back there. And I still remember the lot. It was kind of a dirt lot with those stones around it. They never cared to pave it. They owned it for about, I don't know, probably 30, 40 years there. And I remember as a kid growing up that my cousins and I was a fence there because it was a bad part of West Oakland. We used to play out that area. And I remember many times that we would just take our fingers and try to write in the sand there. I remember times as a kid going to a beach somewhere, what, what oftentimes we went, and we would try to build sandcastles. But every now and then, we tried to make, we tried to write something in the sand. Notice in verse 6, the Bible says, Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he did not see, he did not hear them. Jesus is writing. Jesus is pretending he doesn't hear a thing that he, they say. He's ignoring everything they're saying. He's writing on the ground. Jesus, instead of them like, take control of the situation, Jesus is in control of the situation. I'm remind you this morning, sometimes things in our lives seem like they're out of control. It's kind of like I was telling uh, the class that was in just earlier, out in Norway right now, as we sit here, there is a, there is a cruise ship out there called, that was, uh, that's owned by the Viking Company, and uh, two of their engines went dead uh, yesterday, and at 4 o'clock they sent an SOS signal out and, because they're in, dis they're in distress, and there's a huge storm that come in, and, and you just see the pictures on it, it just kind of makes you afraid, and just seeing this, this huge cruise liner ship with 1,300 people up on it upside down. I mean, the, the captain of the ship and, the, and all those people, it's out of control and they had to call for help and a couple helicopters have come and they're just taking people up one at a time or two at a time in that, that stormy situation. And of course, they, they're, they're asking for comments for some of these people. They're being lifted out and they said, man, we've never felt so out of control. And here in this situation, these men thought they could take control of the situation, but Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was in control. Let me remind you this morning, you might be facing cancer, and you might be facing a sickness, and you might be facing a job unemployment situation, and you might be facing a family difficulty, and you feel like the devil has control. May I remind you where it looks like it's out of control. Always remind yourself this morning, if you're saved, Jesus is always in control. And Christ is in control of the situation. And Christ being controlled, he doesn't listen to the words of the media. He doesn't listen to what the critics have to say. He doesn't listen to the disparaging comments that other people have to make. He just goes on and does what Jesus does best. He does what's best, which is being God. And he starts writing in the sand. And you know, he does something that perhaps never happened. These Pharisees scribes, they've never seen a, if you would, a, a rabbi sit, kneel down and start writing. I mean, to, to you and me, it would seem kind of rude. He should have responded to them. And he is responding to them, but they're kind of thinking, well, give us a verbal response. And then he puts his head down. He's stooping down. He's not looking at them. And he's writing in the sand. Notice it says, and the scriptures are very specific here, with his finger. May I remind you this morning, that is the finger of God. Not the finger of man, but it's the finger of God. We remind ourselves when we see the finger of God, the finger of God is prominent and preeminent in Scripture. The finger of God presents to us God's sovereignty and God's authority. With His very fingers, God is in control of things. Notice if you would, 
We have mentioned about the finger of God in Exodus 31, 18. It was with the finger of God that the Ten Commandments were written on stone. The Bible says, and he gave unto Moses when he made an end of communing with him upon Mount Sinai. Two tables of testimony, tables of stone written with the finger of God. I've sometimes have paused and meditated on that. And I thought, man, you know, for you and me, we'd have to take a hammer and a chisel to chisel away on the stone to try to make something of it. And it took enough work already for Moses just to make these to get these two tablets and God took these tablets he carved them out of the stone and with the finger of God God wrote those 10 commandments out and what we read in Exodus chapter 20 and the giving those commandments and again in Deuteronomy chapter 5 and the giving those commandments they were written by the by the finger of God I'm gonna remind you this morning the finger of God is sovereign and the finger of God is greater than you and I and the finger of God is greater than any power in this universe and with that finger God gave us his law and God gave us his authority and God showed Notice he's in control. But then again, I see another instance. We see the finger of God in Daniel 5.5. And there we see the finger of God not just writing on stone, but the finger of God writing on the stucco, writing on the wall. And we have the story there, there at the time when Daniel was about maybe in his early 80s or late 70s there the prophet Daniel, that the kingdom now is in the third generation. It started there, Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar is the king, and then his son came, and then his grandson, Belshazzar, became king. And Belshazzar was a very, very, very wicked man. He had a great banqueting, and his banqueting, if you would, was not traditional. Typically, in those days, when there were banquets that kings held, the men would be in one place, and the women would be in another. But as we read very carefully, Daniel chapter 5, he held what we would call an orgy. He had a very terrible banqueting time where he communed, we brought men and women together and there was great sin that was going on and drunkenness was going on and he got to a place of such drunkenness he remembered those golden vessels and those silver vessels that his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple of Jerusalem consecrated vessels that belonged to God and he brought those vessels out and he had wine poured into them and he started, he started encouraging his princes to drink that wine and partake of it and those vessels which had been consecrated to God that king and his drunken stupor and his terrible wicked heart started praising the God of wood and of earth and silver and gold. He was an idolatrous man. And as he did so, and the revelry was going on, and the banquetings were going on, some of that of which I think as you read 1 Peter chapter, 5, chapter 4, I think Peter may have had that in mind as he thought about the Gentiles banqueting and reveling and things like that. These people are reveling and they're having their party and they're cursing God and taking God's name in vain and they're participating in activities that not, I can't even mention from the pulpit, things that they're doing and they're drunken, inebriated stupor. They're in this place where everybody's having a good time and people think they're getting away with it and all of a sudden the Bible says the finger of a man's hand appeared and started writing on the wall and Belshazzar saw it and the Bible describes this way as the finger was writing on the wall that Belshazzar was filled with such fear that the Bible says that his joints began to shake literally this man lost control of his bodily movement he lost control of his muscles he lost control of his bones let me tell you this morning if the finger of God came out right now and the hand of God started writing on this wall and tore down this banner and started writing on that wall I want I wonder if we too would be like Belshazzar. We would shake in our joints and in our, in our hearts. We would shake and tremble because God's hand was manifest. And there God wrote a message to King Belshazzar where he told him, your days are numbered. Your kingdom is finished and today will be your end. And he wrote that messenger to tell that man, I've had it with you. You've got a time to repent. You would not repent of your sins. And because of that, your judgment has come. And the Bible says this in Daniel 5.5. 5. 
In the same hour came forth fingers of a man's hand and rode over against the candlestick upon the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. Oh, the finger of God gave us the Ten Commandments. And the finger of God wrote on the wall at an opportune time. But notice this third time. We find our Lord Jesus Christ, God, manifest in the flesh. He was in the flesh, but he was still Almighty God, stooping down and writing with his finger in the sand. Look at it again. This they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him but Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground not about you have you ever thought about what was he writing do you ever think about what was he writing on the ground and how long did this event occur how long was this transpiration these Pharisees as we read later on they're still berating Jesus and they're saying what sayest thou what do you have to say about this matter this woman is taking the very act of adultery they didn't talk about their sin they didn't talk about where the man was they didn't talk about how they knew about this they didn't even talk about the fact that maybe even some of these Pharisees had had an illicit affair with that woman they didn't even talk about the fact that those men in their hearts had lusted after that woman may I remind you this morning on the heels of all this Jesus told them on the Sermon on the Mount of which some of those men were there he is describing on that Sermon on the Mount adultery he said but let me tell you something he says yes when a man commits adultery that's wrong but he says if a man even looketh on a woman to lust after in his own heart he says that is the beginning of adultery that is adultery in itself those very men heard that and you can't help but think if they saw this woman the very act that maybe those men because they were moved by sensation of sight their ass lust happened in their hearts and they were even lusting at that moment but Jesus Jesus is there writing in the sand. What was he writing? What was he declaring there? I believe as we look at this, Jesus is fulfilling what is written there in Jeremiah chapter 17. If you don't have it, I want you to turn to Jeremiah 17 with me. If you don't see in your notes, and notice in Jeremiah 17 verse 13, here's what it says. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all that forsake thee shall be ashamed. I believe as God gave that message to Jeremiah, he's speaking in, in anticipation of this very event that would happen. He says, O Lord, he says, the hope of Israel, all that forsake thee shall be ashamed. Listen, those Pharisees and scribes had long time had forsaken the Lord. They exalted their traditions over the truth of God's word. They, they exalted their formalities over the foundation of the word of God. They exalted themselves over the Lord Jesus Christ. And these men, as we read these previous verses, and they heard the words from those common men. Never man spake like this man. They said, are you also one of him? Are you just like him? They spoke despairingly about our Lord Jesus Christ. They criticize him. They took his name in vain. They swore against him. And so the Lord says here in Jeremiah 17, 13, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all that forsake thee shall be ashamed. And they that depart from me shall be written in the earth because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters. Did you imagine that? There in Jeremiah 17, he says, all that forsake me, they shall be written in the earth. Their sins will be mentioned there in the earth. God will write down for them. He'll write them up in the earth because they've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. Remember earlier I said this, that this event, this incident is occurring on the heels of the feast of the tabernacles. Just the day before, Jesus said that he spoke of himself as being the fountain of living waters. He spoke about him being the fountain. He spoke about himself as being the source of life. And right on the heels of all that, these men are accusing Jesus. And Jesus is writing the sand. And these men who knew enough about the word of God may have known that Jesus was referring to Jeremiah 17, 13 as he's writing in the sand. He's writing their things that would, would make these men shudder in the earth, uh, in, their, in their knees. He's writing in the earth. So we see the writing. But notice this go a little bit further. Notice in verses 7 and 9, we see the response. Jesus is writing in the sand. 
These men are ignoring him. They're pretending they're not seeing what he does. And that's what we do sometimes. Sometimes we pretend we didn't hear what God said. Sometimes we pretend when a sin is mentioned or a need is mentioned that it doesn't apply to us, it applies to somebody else. These men were focused on trying to entrap Jesus. These men were focused on, on not even caring about this woman, about what's going on with her, because they just saw her as just fulfilling what their, their, their agenda there. And notice Jesus as they're, they're talking to him. The Bible says in verse 7, so when they continued asking, they kept on badgering him. What do you think about this? What do you have to say about this? And that's how we are sometimes. Sometimes God's word's very clear what he says, but we keep on asking God, what do you have to say about it? In other words, we, we ignore what's already there. We're not paying attention to what's already given. We're trying to find something that's not there. What do you have to say about the matter? And so when they continue to ask him, the Bible says he lifted up himself. Can you imagine this? Here's Jesus on the ground. Jeremiah 17, 13. All that forsake me shall be ashamed. They shall be written in the earth. Because they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. Jesus is writing there in the Hebrew. He's writing so they could see it. He's writing large enough so no one could miss it there. And they said, what do you have to say about that? And they keep badgering him and say, what do you have to say about this matter? And then all of a sudden, the Lord Jesus Christ stands up. Now I'll tell you this morning, if Jesus came in here and walked to this pulpit, we better stand up. Amen? Amen. We better stand up. And Jesus stood up, and those men who were reverent to him, notice he said, and then notice in verse 7, he makes a statement in this response. He that is without sin among you. He that is without sin among you. Let him first cast a stone at her. And then as soon as he said that, if you can imagine, as he said, that's very stinging. That took them off guard. Where did that come from? He that is without sin among you. Let him first cast the stone. And then he did something that they didn't expect. He had, he'd been riding in the sand. He wasn't done. Jesus bends down again. He stoops down, the Bible says, and he starts riding again. What's he riding? Well, the Bible says they'll be written earth. I think he wrote their names down. I think he wrote down their sins. I think he wrote down that those men had lusted in their hearts. I think he wrote down that these men had covetousness. I think he wrote down the very sins of those men. They shall be written in the earth. It's all written up. Jesus was showing them there's nothing hidden that he does not see. Listen, Psalms chapter 90 verse 8 tells us this. Thou hast set our iniquities before thee, our secret sins, in the light of thy countenance. Those men were looking and glaringly and trying to blow up the sin of this woman. But Jesus was fulfilling Psalms. 90 verse 8. He set their iniquities before them, their secret sins in the light of thy countenance. Brother and sister in Christ, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It's easy and quick for us to find the fault with somebody else. Be reminded this morning, God knows in your heart and God knows in my heart our secret sins. He knows what's going on there. He knows what's hidden. He knows what somebody else doesn't know. He knows what we've practiced in the darkness. He knows what's going on in our thoughts. He knows what we're thinking right now. He knows that hatred. He knows that bitterness. He knows that stealing. He knows that illicit relationship. He knows those things. You say, preacher, this is Sunday morning. Yeah, and that was morning there too. And he was riding in the sand, amen. There's the disclosure of God. Listen, Jesus is giving response, and he tells them, he that is without sin among you. Listen, those men, Jesus wrote down every sin. He made sure every man, his name was mentioned there. Every one of those Pharisees and every one of those scribes, their names were written in the sand. And every one of them, I believe, like a ledger account, he wrote one guy's name down. He listed every sin of that man. He wrote the other man's name down and listed the sins of that man. He wrote another man's name down and listed the sins of that man. There with the finger of God, he pointed 
pointed them out and identified what their sins were. He set their secret sins before thee. But it wasn't just their covetousness. And it wasn't just their secrecy. More than anything else as we see this year, Jesus is attacking something that he sees in their hearts and he sees in our hearts. He was attacking something that as we get to the gospel, Matthew, Jesus amplifies on later on in Matthew 23 about the hypocrisy and self-righteousness of these men. Go with me to 1 John chapter 1, if you would, please. 1 John chapter 1, would you go there, please? That's not in your notes. Go with me to 1 John chapter 1, and I want you to notice some scriptures that I want to read slowly and carefully to you this morning. Because Jesus is being confrontational. They thought they were being confrontational with Jesus, but remember, Jesus is in control. By the way, there's nothing that surprises our Lord. Amen? And notice in John, 1 John, and I love how John writes this, because maybe back in John, John's mind, he's thinking back as he writes verses 7 through 10. He's thinking back at the fact of what happened here in, 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 Matthew, in John chapter 8. Notice he begins in verse 7. He says, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, the Son, cleanses us from all sin. Number one, it's important that we walk in the light. Walking light is demonstrating our fellowship with the Lord. Walking the light demonstrates our obedience to the Word of God. Walking light means we desire God more than we want even breath itself. Walking the light is His light. We have fellowship with one another. And we're walking the light, we're going to love each other as brethren. We walk in the light, we're going to extend mercy to each other. We walk in the light, we're going to fellowship one another. And remind you today, we've got outreach this afternoon and from 1.30 to 3. If you want to walk in light, go out there and meet some of our folks who are going to outreach this afternoon. Then we get to verse 8. Notice... He, he exposes something. There's, if we say we have no sin, and that's what those men were doing. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Those men were giving indication there of their self-righteous, self-righteous saying, I don't have sin. I'm not like the publican. I'm not like that person. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Hey, the greatest deceit is self-deceit. The greatest fool could be fooling myself and thinking, I don't have sin. We need to be, have the attitude the publican did as he stood in that area and he says, God, be merciful to me. I am such a sinner. We ought to smote our chest and say, God, be merciful to me. I'm such a sinner. And then we go down to verse 10 and he says, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Now, first of all, in verse 8, he talks about presence if we say we have no sin. That's what some of those Pharisees were thinking. I don't have sin like this. I wasn't caught in the very act. They didn't say they hadn't done it before, but they said I wasn't caught in the very act. And Jesus said here, listen, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and we give no indication that the truth is in us. And by the way, as we stand here in John chapter 8, it's the truth looking them right in the face. And then we go to verse 10 and verse 10 looks at the past tense. It looks at how we are after we've been saved for a period of time and how we are when we get just know all the lingo. We can find all the books, the Bible. If we say we have not sinned, we say, well, I haven't sinned for a long time. I haven't done this. Listen, this morning, I believe every one of us have sinned since yesterday, amen? If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. We're saying, God, you're not true. We're saying, God, you're wrong. We're saying, God, your word can't be right. We make him a liar, and his word is not, we give indication. It's been a long time since the word of God has indwelt in us. And so Jesus, in this response, he's attacking the Pharisees and their judgmentalness and their, and their, and their self-righteousness and their hypocrisy, their pretense. They're putting on a face as if they're okay. In reality, as they were presenting this woman, they were just showing their hypocrisy. They were showing that they had sinned, and they were manifesting. And I imagine many of the crowd that was assembled there, they kind of looked with disdain and said, how could you, God? 
eyes, dare even to catch this woman and bring her there. And even though she is, she did commit a sin. And even though she is deserving of perhaps under our law stoning, how could you in your right mind, who probably even sinned with this woman yourselves, how could you even declare such a thing? And Jesus there is looking at these men and saying, he that is without sin among you. I remind you this morning, none of us are without sin. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. Don't you stand there and sit there with your self-righteous attitude and put your thumbs in your lapels and walk around saying, I've not sinned. I've not sinned like this man. No, but you know what? The Bible categorized sins of the flesh, this woman, and the sins of the spirit, the Pharisees. And just having a bad spirit, being critical, being bitter, being unforgiving, Always having an angry spirit, having a bad attitude, looking negatively at things, looking at everything through glasses where you see negativism instead of things that are positive in the light. Listen, that's a sin of the spirit. And Paul, in addressing that, he says over in 2 Corinthians 7, 1, having therefore cleansed ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and of the spirit. Filthiness doesn't apply just to sins of immorality. Filthiness also applies sins of the spirit because sins of the spirit also spot the garment and also spot the flesh. And so Jesus here accuses these men. He says, he that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. Jesus is going after these men and saying, you're being judgmental and you're being hypocritical. Matthew 7, verses 1 to 5. Judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you shall be judged. And with measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. And why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye? Or how wilt thou say to thy brother, Let me pull out the mote out of thine own thine eye? Behold, a beam is in thine own eye. Thou hypocrite, first cast out the beam out of thine own eye, and then thou shalt see clearly to kiss out the mote out of thy brother's eye. Hey, may not be for many of us who are trying to live right, we don't have this problems like this woman did. But Jesus is putting his finger on our sin. We find a speck in somebody else's eye. We're trying to extract that. When there's a log, a beam, a 50-foot tall redwood tree or sequoia protruding out of our eye, he that's without sin among you, let him be first to cast a stone. Well, we see the writing, we see the response, but you notice the release. How did these men react to that? Because Jesus has written in the sand, and I believe he's, according to Jeremiah 17, 13, he's written them up. He's written their names, he's written their sins. By the way, the Lord knows yours and mine. By the way, the wages of sin is death. The Bible says in verse 9, when they heard it, be convicted by their own conscience. They went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even to the last. Well, we see these men, they're convicted by the word of our Lord. The Bible begins in verse, verse, verse 9, it says, when they heard it, faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Over and over again, the Lord Jesus Christ makes a statement, he that hath an ear, let him hear. This morning, are we listening? Do we hear God? And Jesus is speaking to them, but Jesus spoke to them through the writing of, of his finger on the sand. And the Bible says these men, each one of them, one by one, convicted in their own conscience. Listen, when God's word is read, when God's word is studied, when God's word is preached, when God's word is given to us, when we hear the word of God, we should be convicted in our own conscience. Do you have a good conscience? You have a tender heart. 
Do you get moved? Do you get bothered? Are you convicted? These men convicted in their own conscience. And beginning with the eldest. And I thought it was kind of interesting. Then begin with the youngest, begin with the eldest. Hey, many of you have been like me. You've been saved for many years. I've been saved 47 years, December of this year. But I remind you, the longer you're in the Christian life, the more you can ignore the things of God. You can ignore the little things in your life. And these men, beginning the eldest, they were convicted of their heart of what they did. Hey, don't be somebody who's been in church for such a long time and been a Christian for a long time that you lose that tenderness you had when you were a young Christian. They went out one by one, and you can imagine each man, they took a stone, dropped their stone there. Next one went out, dropped the stone there, dropped the stone. And all across that area, whatever number of scribes and fairies, they all dropped their stones. But you notice the picture goes from being very ugly to being very beautiful. Would you notice this in verse 9? And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. Can I say something this morning? God doesn't need you and me to point out somebody somebody else's sins to him. He already knows. It's because he knows God has to deal with each of us in an individual way. Jesus was there alone with the woman in the midst. Would you notice something very beautiful here? And Jesus lifted up himself, and he saw none but the woman. He said, woman, where are those unaccusers? Has no man condemned thee? Now, Jesus already knew what was going on. He's, a, he's omniscient. He knows everything. Amen? He said, woman, where are your accusers? Where are those ones who have brought faults against you? Has no man condemned thee? Aren't you under the condemnation, man? Hey, may I remind you this morning, if we're under the condemnation, man, we'll suffer what man gives. But more than being under the condemnation of man is being under the condemnation of God. And you notice here, he says, has any man, where's your condemnation? And this woman, she's watched this go on, and she's in amazement because just seconds have gone by. And Pharisee after Pharisee, from the oldest to the last, they've taken that stone. And by the way, when they brought Jesus, they already had the stone in their hand. They're ready to kill her right there on the spot. I mean, they drop one stone after the other, and they just kind of walk out. Now, did they walk away? They walked out from being near him, and I think they just kind of mingle themselves in the back of the crowd because as we read later on in John chapter 8, Jesus is not done with them, and they're not done with him either. So they probably just kind of went invisible and went to the back of the crowd there because they didn't want to be found. They were embarrassed by what had gone on there, and they wanted to see what Jesus would do. And Jesus is not done yet because there was work to be done with that woman. That was that woman there. She'd been found guilty of her sin. And so the people were wondering, is he going to have her stone? What's he going to do? And he asked this question woman where are your accusers has no man condemned thee and as he had this confrontation this woman he was speaking to her and she makes a statement in verse 12 would you notice this she says no man lord and would you notice that woman perhaps in her heart she had despised god up until that moment she had despised god and thought very little of god because of her lifestyle and jesus shows her that he's truth because truth has revealed itself here but notice in verse 11 jesus shows himself as being merciful neither do i condemn thee he said in verse 11 go and sin no more jesus did something remarkable an ugly situation became beautiful jesus forgave this woman jesus relieved this woman Jesus washed away her sins. Listen, this woman called him Lord. She had faith to believe that he was the son of God. And perhaps even that woman was there during the Feast of the Tabernacles. And even the day before when he announced that that he that believeth on me, maybe in her heart of hearts, she was going back in her mind thinking about what Jesus had said there. And she's thinking about the fact, this is no ordinary man. And this is no ordinary Messiah, no ordinary rabbi. This must be the Messiah. This must be the son of God. And she says, no man here, Lord, accuses me. She recognized worse than being accused by the Pharisees. 
message was being standing in the very presence of an almighty Savior and a holy God and a holy Savior who loves us, but he looks at us. And would you notice here we see a wonderful embracement that happens here because notice when the truth says we must expose sin and the truth says we must call sin what it is and we must list its name and we must understand the truth points you out and points me out to who we are and you cannot hide from the truth and you cannot run from the truth. But you notice here we see where there's truth, there's also mercy because Jesus Christ is extending mercy to this woman. Would you look at Psalms 8510? This is so beautiful. Because Psalms 8510, I believe, teaches us and shows us what's going on here at this moment. It says in Psalms 8510, mercy and truth have met together. Jesus standing there, yes, he was her, her judge, but yes, he also stood there as her savior. Mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. And there we find in Psalms 8510, being fulfilled in Jesus' manifestation with this lady there in this situation. He releases her. He gives her absolvement of her sin. She's exonerated from her sins. She's expunged from her sins. Neither do I condemn thee. Jesus saying, listen, you're no longer in that sense of condemnation. You've shown your faith in me. You've shown your belief in me. You've come to me for forgiveness of sins. He says, neither do I condemn thee. Can I say something to you this morning? If you've put your faith and trust in God's son, Jesus Christ, the Savior, neither does he condemn you. The Bible says in John 5, 24, verily, verily, I say unto thee, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not see condemnation. Aren't you glad this morning you're no longer under condemnation? There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit. Romans 8.1. Aren't you glad this morning that condemnation is no longer there? It's been pushed away. Thank God this morning Jesus looked at this woman and he said no, neither do I condemn thee. Listen, if you put your faith and trust in the blood of Jesus Christ to wash away your sin and to give you forgiveness of sin, no, and the condemnation of sin is taken away from you. You're no longer in the set of sin. You've been set free. You are free in Jesus Christ. And this woman was set free there. Neither do I condemn thee. And Jesus said, go and sin no more. He gave her a new life. He gave her what nobody else would give her. He gave her love. He gave her forgiveness and acceptance. An old farmer one day Put an advertisement out in the country store. Puppies for sale. They didn't have social media out there. Puppies for sale. A little boy was there at the store with his mother and he saw the sign. He said, Mom, I'm going to go out that farm. I know that farmer. She said, Sure, said, go ahead. A little boy walked out there and there was a big, the man was out there on the fence, a fence in area, and he's put a sign out there puppies for sale. And a little boy walked up behind the man and said, Sir, are you the man selling those little puppies I saw at the store? He said, Yes, son, right here, puppies for sale. He said, Well, can I see them? He says, Well, I don't know if you can afford them, son. These are four well-bred little, little puppies here, and I'm not sure you can afford them. He said, Well, bring them out. Can you bring them out? And he says, uh, he said, By the way, how much do you have? He says, 39 cents. This is back in the days before inflation, all right? Okay. <laughs> he whistles. Four little puppies come out, their mother, the mother dog. And little boy looks at them. And he says, look at these fine four little puppies here of this litter. But the boy's eyes were not on the four. The boy's eyes was on a little puppy that was behind the number five that the man didn't want to talk about. 
And the little, the little one in the back there was about several paces behind his, his siblings there because he was hobbling along. He was, he was born with a disfigured leg and was a little bit lame on one leg and couldn't, he was just hobbling along. And, and the, man, the, man was just, the man was just talking about the four and the boy says, sir, wait a minute, what about that puppy back there? He says, son, you don't want that puppy back there. You don't want the one hobbling there. He was born deformed. This, boy, this puppy will never make it. He grows up. He'll have trouble. He'll never keep up with you. And the boy looked at the man, and he rolled up the, his pants legs. As he rolled up his pants legs, he showed from his knee all the way down to his ankle. He showed two braces that were there that was attached to a little device to his foot. And the boy, unbeknownst to the man as he stood there, the boy was, all, was deformed in his leg. He was born with one leg shorter than the other, that right leg. And as he got there, he started walking around like this, and the man started looking at him. He said, well, why are you interested in that little dog? He says, sir, look at my leg. He says, that little puppy needs someone to care for him like I needed somebody to care for me. And I remind you this morning, Jesus Christ looks on you and me like he looked on that woman. He looks at us as being deformed by sin. He looks at us being disabled by sin. He looks at us being marred by sin and the darkness of sin and reject of sin. And he looks at us with sympathy and love and mercy. And he sends his loving arms to us. And in spite of the fact that the law and religion might reject us, thank God this morning we have a Savior who loves us and a Savior who receives you and I today. And so notice we're not done yet. We're almost there. We see the advantages of light. We see the accusation in the light. We see the action in the light. But you notice the announcement in the light. Jesus has just given this woman relief and liberty. And quickly, would you notice verse 12? And this is on the heels of the, of the great temple scenario. Then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall walk in darkness, but shall, shall, not walk, shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Would you understand the background of this? Because this, is, this just, just created an explosion in the sky. During the Feast of the Tabernacles, in addition to the water ceremony that was done by the priest every day, on the very first day of the Feast of the Tabernacles, they would go to the courtyard of the temple, in the courtyard of the temple were four large candelabras. These candelabras stood 75 feet in the air. And on that very first day in the evening, they would send a young man up there or a young priest up there, and he would pour, he would bring a 10-gallon jar with him. And this 10-gallon jar would, be, would, would have oil, and he would pour oil into, inside of every one of these candelabras because there would be a big bowl to connect it, to, to catch it. And there these candelabras, beginning that very first night, would be lit up. And all four of those candelabras, because they stood 75 feet, in the air, they would light up the entire city. They would light up the courtyard. Every home that would be found there would be lit up. And because Jerusalem was on a hill, the city of Jerusalem could be seen far away. I believe when Jesus spoke about it in Matthew chapter 5, a city set on a hill, I believe he was talking about that Feast of Tabernacles when the priest would come and pour the oil inside that bowl and the city would be lit up. And you can imagine for eight consecutive days, that city had been blow, glowing and blazing morning and evening because the, the setting of that candelabra ablaze with the fire there with the lighting up was a reminder to them going back into the wilderness when God came to them and he led them as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night and how God was the light of their lives and God gave them eternal light and God gave them everlasting life and light and God gave them light to light their path and it didn't matter if it was daytime or evening 
God lighted the way. And now many years later, the Jews are celebrating here on the Feast of Tabernacles, this great lighting up. And you can imagine people's homes, their courtyards were filled. And light came into their houses. And light came into their windows. And there was nothing that could be hid. And those great four candelabras lit up. The entire city was glowing and glowing and glowing on the evening. And, and all of that ended on that eighth day. And now Jesus here has set this woman free. He's given magnification that we have a God in heaven who loves us. And a God in heaven who forgives us of our sins. And a God who would die on the cross for your sins and mine. And there, as he sets this woman free, and there, as he shed light on the, on the life and the deeds of these men, Jesus makes his declaration on the heels of that great lighting of the ceremony. He says, listen, I am the light of the world. Yes, those candelabras may light up the city, but I'm the light that lights up the world. And I'm the light of the gospel that lights up your life. And I'm the light that can take you out of darkness. And I'm the light that can give you life. I am the light of the world. And you can imagine as Jesus said those words and none of that statement, there must have been an excitement. There must have been euphoria. There must be a calmness to sell in the hearts of people because he said, I am the light of the world. Remind you this morning as we close, Jesus is still the light of the world. He's still the light that lights up every life. He's still the light for your soul and for mine. He's still the light that can help every sinner come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Why do we have an Easter musical? And why do we have outreach on Saturdays and Sundays? And why do we have outreach throughout the week? And why do we encourage you to hold tracks in your hand and declare the gospel message? Because Jesus is not darkness. He's still the light that lighteth every man and we want to get that light and we want to punch some holes in the darkness and we want some people to know that you believe on him you can be saved as we close this morning notice verse 12 Jesus said I am the light of the world he that follows me what does that mean that means come to the light Get out of the darkness and come to the light. Those Pharisees, they retreated backwards. They, they immersed themselves in the crowd. But I could feel the press of the crowd. The crowd was coming forward because he's inviting people to come to him. I'm the light of the world. He that followed me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. As we close this morning, I want to tell you about a story. 1938 at the Empire Exhibit, which was held in Glasgow, Scotland. This great exhibit back in the day, Christians would assemble there. They'd be led by an evangelist who would give out tracts and put up booths and displays to try to get the gospel of the people who would assemble those events. Back in that time, 1938, the world was not as hostile to the gospel as it is. In fact, it was very receiving, very receptive to the gospel message. They'd give out New Testaments, they'd give out Bibles, they'd give out tracts, and every now and then when an opportunity came, the evangelist would stand up and preach the word of God. And during that time, it was at this particular situation, many were getting saved. This area called the Royal Mile Avenue was a kiosk that they established. And there at this kiosk, there was a Bible, a large Bible that was placed there. And everybody had to walk by that Royal Mile Avenue, and they had to cross this kiosk. And everybody that did so, they'd walk by, and they'd come out of this kiosk, and they'd stand there. There was a, there was a large Bible that was there. And this Bible had this same verse, verse 12, chapter, John chapter 8, verse 12, was underlined. And there it was underlined in red ink. It said, it said, it was underlined there, I am the light of the world. But underneath that was a sign. And the sign had a, was, was, had a hand that pointed, somebody drew a figure of a hand that pointed back to the verse where it said, I am the light of the world. And there on that sign it said this, it's the only way out of the dark. And I remind you this morning, the finger of God is still pointing to his word. And he points to his Savior, Jesus Christ, and says he's the only way out of the darkness. If you're walking in the dark, may I encourage you this morning, come to Jesus, get saved. May I encourage Christians today, you're no longer darkness, but you're now light. Walk as children of the light. Be prepared and ready 
ready to live for God. Manifest the fact that you're children of light. Manifest the fact that you walk in the day and not in darkness. Maybe there's some secret sin God's speaking to us about that we need to confess and make right with Him. We need to walk in the light and come, come clean with Jesus. Amen. We need to realize this morning. We need to come, come clean with the Lord. And maybe we need to come like this woman to say, Lord, no, no man condemns me, but Lord, I come to you. And may we find forgiveness with Christ because mercy and truth have met together. And it might be this morning, the truth of God's word has been declared. Mercy extends to you. That mercy and truth can meet together. And there you can receive God's mercy for forgiveness of sins and a washing of your life. And if you're not saved today, you can get saved. And you're far away from God. You can come close to God and be near to him today. Oh, don't delay because Jesus stands there in the midst of that great lighting of the ceremony that what shone more brightly than the lighting of the ceremony was the fact that Jesus Christ is the light of the world. Would you let him light up your life? Would you let him shine on you? Would you let him illuminate your life? Would you let him shine brightly in your life? Let's do that this morning. Thank God this morning we have a Savior who gets us out of the dark. Father, this morning, I pray that you take the precious passage we've looked at today and the wonderfulness of Jesus in the midst of all this magnified you and magnified his deity. And Lord, there's so much here in this passage that speaks to us about our need and our concerns. Lord, we think about the finger of God this morning. Perhaps that same finger is pointing at us. That same finger is riding us up in the earth. And that same finger, Lord, is tapping us on the shoulder. And it might be this morning there's someone here who's not certain. They're saved. They need to come to Christ. With every head bowed and every eye closed, can I ask you a question? Is God's finger tapping you on the shoulder? Tugging at your heart? If you die today, do you know for sure you're going to heaven? If you don't know that for sure, God wants you to be saved. God wants you to receive forgiveness of sin and to gift eternal life, just like this woman did. Is there someone here today that raised her hand? You'd raise your right hand as a pastor. I'm not sure I'm saved, but I want to get saved. I'm not sure I've been forgiven of my sins, but I want that forgiveness that Jesus Christ offers. I come to the light now. Anyone like that, you'd raise your hand and say, Pastor, I need that light. I need to trust Christ this morning as my Savior. How about Christian friend? Are you in the darkness? Are you walking the light as he's in the light? Is your fellowship sweet with him? Walking the light means we must be obedient. Walking the light means we need to do the little things that he wants us to do. Are there some things you're holding back on God on? Are there some things in our life that we need to just say quietly in our heart, Lord, you know it, and you've set my secret sins before thee? Hey, listen today. Mercy and truth meet together. Mercy is available today. Trust him today. Which Christian friend, how about take a stand for Christ? Walk in the light. Be a light for him. Hold forth the word of life in light. Let's do that this morning. Father, today as we give the invitation, move us, stir us, help us today to glorify and please you. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Let's stand. The piano's playing. If you need to come this morning, you need to get saved, why don't you come and take the altar workers by the hand and say, I need to get saved today. You have a friend here that's not saved. Why don't you bring your friend and help him come to get saved. As a Christian today, do you sense the need of walking the light? Do you sense the need of being a children of the day? Don't hold out on God. Don't wait for another opportunity. Another opportunity might not come. Trust him this morning. Would you do that today? We'll sing another stanza. You need to be saved. You come this morning. Another stanza, Christian, are you walking the day? Are you going to leave today the same way you came in? You're going to leave different. That woman left free. That woman left saved. He said, go and sin no more. The going implies action and work, responsibility. He says, go and sin no more. Don't live that way. Thank God we can get a fresh start. Amen. Thank God we have a fresh start with the Lord. You come this morning. 
Father, thank you for loving us. And Lord, even as the words that Jesus spoke may have been startling, and Lord, were stirring and pricked hearts, I pray this morning our hearts were pricked and our hearts were moved about our need for Christ. I pray for sinners today who are not sure they're going to heaven, that they confess Christ as Savior. I pray for Christians today to live for God, to take a stand for Christ. And he said, he that follow me shall not walk in darkness. Father, help us to get our eyes fixed on the Lord and walk as children of the light. And Lord, to be sober and vigilant and watching for the coming of our Lord. Thank you for loving us. Dismiss us with your blessing, we pray in Jesus' name. What a moment. I'm